Blog Talk Radio. And good evening, everybody, and thank you for choosing King Jordan Radio for the 16th of July, 2014. This is King Jordan. Today we're going to be joined by Media Mayhem Zone. You see you're on YouTube. Allison Hope Weiner. We will discuss uh, such cases as the dad accused of killing his own son, the escort, uh, heroin overdose, and much, much more. Let's bring her into the program. Ladies and gentlemen, you see her on YouTube. She's a lawyer. She does it all. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Allison Hope Weiner. Good evening, Allison, and welcome to King Jordan Radio. How are you? Hi, I'm great. I'm really pleased to be on. <laughs> I'm looking so, forward to it. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And for the new listeners, uh, give us a little bio of yourself. Okay. Well, um, I am a writer. I covered Hollywood for Entertainment Weekly for about five years, and I went to the New York Times and worked at the New York Times for about 30 years covering Hollywood and also specifically the Anthony Pelicano Private Eye of the Stars case, as well as a number of other cases, um, and writing about all kinds of different kind of business things that had to do with Hollywood. That's sort of my forte because I was an um, entertainment litigator before I became a journalist and went to law school and found that a little bit on the dull side. So I ended up covering um, the kind of stuff that I was doing when I was a lawyer. So then I founded a YouTube show, which is um, uh, a uh, two shows, actually. One which covers crime called Crime Time with Allison Hope Weiner on TheLip.TV. And I also do one about the media called Media Mayhem with Allison Hope Weiner. Again, I'm a little name focused, clearly byline focused, as are many journalists. But anyway, Media Mayhem yeah. has to deal with the media and going behind the scenes. And we deal with anybody who is either the subject of a story or who works in the media, including, say, Vince Gilligan from Breaking Bad. Um, we've had on Amy Sherman Palladino, did the Gilmore Girls. We've had on William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist, and uh, even anybody as far as a lot of authors, like the former ambassador Joe Wilson, talking, uh, you know, about what had happened to Valerie Plain and himself, his wife Valerie. So that's kind of what I do. And our show is on every Tuesday, Crime Time. And Thursday crime time, we post it in the evenings on the internet. It's free, and we also have Media Mayhem, which is on um, on Thursday evenings. And that's my bio, as quickly as I can tell you. Absolutely, and uh, basically, uh, how many years have you been uh, doing the uh, Media Mayhem show? Was it say five years now? Yeah. No, it, actually, it's been, it'll be three in August. So we kind of built it up from nothing, and uh, the list of guests. If everybody want, if you Google Allison Hope Weiner, or you simply Google the TV, you'll see the Media Mayhem, and you'll also see our recent posts of Media Mayhem. We actually had on Seth Shapiro talking about new uh, ways of streaming and technologies. Also on the Academy, um, the Emmy nomination Academy of uh, uh, for Emmys. And he's just he talked about what we're recently going through right now, which he calls the golden age of television. And we talked about some different shows and sort of the wars over streaming rights and how we're going to be consuming television in the future. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, Media Mayhem is really coming along. I mean, and I think we are able to talk, tackle all kinds of things, everything from, say, the church is, you know, sex, uh, abuse scandal, talking with different priests who were involved in, in bringing the matter to light and now represent um, victims of uh, of the scandal. Um, and we just sort of can, you know, talk about everything all the way to television and movies and even and radio and, on, and we have on different lawyers, even on the Media Mayhem show. But our crime show is a, a particular favorite of mine, I have to say. And that's why I wanted to come on today and chat with you about some of the crime stories in the news. <laughs> Yes, and I know you had Cuomo on recently, who is uh, yes. an icon, his brother over here. <laughs> so that was cool. <laughs> and Jim Murray you had, that was really cool. Yes. So, yeah, Jim Murray uh, from Inside Edition. I thought he had an interesting perspective on uh, on on how 
times changed kind of with the O.J. Simpson case, the coverage. He thinks that it was the beginning kind of reality television started with O.J. Simpson and, and the new media way that we cover celebrities. Absolutely. I do want to discuss close on that, too, which uh, we didn't talk about before the interview, but they were just talking about the Oscar Pistorius trial is still going on. Did you hear the latest in that? You mean about the bar fight? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. What yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I would say, I would assume that his attorneys weren't really thrilled with that, but I think it's probably difficult at this point for him to go anywhere in South Africa or maybe the world without having people voice their opinions about his guilt or his innocence, and he's become right. incredibly infamous during the course of this trial, so what I would expect happened is that somebody, what I've read happened, uh, is that somebody came up to him and got into it with him, and a couple of punches were thrown, but... Uh, uh, it's just, you know, it's basically his defense attorney said something along the lines of, I guess he can't really leave the house. But if you're in the middle of a trial about your client's uh, volatility or his lack of, uh, of thought or restraint and, you're, and the prosecution's trying to portray your client as violent and somebody who has a hair trigger temper, it's probably not the best fact scenario that you'd want coming out just as you go into closing arguments um, at the end of July. Right, right. And... Uh... They did have to take a break for an evaluation or something, right? Requested yeah, that is over with. Yeah. Well, see, the prosecution made a play to try to uh, force the defense. They hadn't put on an uh, insanity defense, but one of their witnesses alluded or testified that Pistorius kind of, you know, intimated that he was kind of out of his mind. He didn't really know what he was doing when he fired the shot. So the prosecution, in order to keep the defense from saying that Pistorius didn't know the difference between right or wrong, asked for a, a mental or a psych evaluation. That took about a month. And the ultimate conclusion of that psych evaluation was that Pistorius was, did know the difference between right and wrong when he fired the gun and killed his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp. So Absolutely. it didn't really, yeah, yeah. It didn't really help. Uh, I, I think the prosecution made a gamble and basically just wanted to make it clear that the defense would not be allowed to argue that he was out of his mind at the time of the killing. Okay, uh, and, let's take a look to this clip. Uh, this is the story that you wanted to talk about, the overdose. Um, let's take a look at the clip so the audience knows what we're talking about. And on the other side, let's talk about it. A woman who police describe as a high-priced prostitute with Silicon Valley clients is being accused of manslaughter in the death of a Google executive. 51-year-old Forrest Hayes, who also previously worked for Apple, was on board a luxury yacht when he died seven months ago. Police at the Santa Cruz Harbor thought Hayes' death was caused by a suicidal overdose, but they say surveillance video shows otherwise. Santa Cruz police say surveillance footage from the yacht shows the suspect Alex Tickleman. They say the video shows the 26-year-old gathering her belongings, including the heroin and needles. Police say Tickleman didn't offer first aid or call 911. She was literally stepping over the body and at one point stepped over the body to grab a glass of wine and finish the glass of wine. She then lowers a blind before leaving the boat. Police used the fingerprints on that glass and arrested Tickleman after posing as a potential client. She was incredibly callous and non-caring about the state of the victim in this particular case. And we feel that that warrants the second degree murder. She's being held on a $1.5 million bail out of Santa Cruz jail for manslaughter and heroin charges. Emily Roseman, The Associated Press. News 10's Carlos Sacedo joins us from the newsroom with what this investigation is revealing about the suspect. This investigation has taken several months to complete, but police believe they finally have their suspect, 26-year-old Alex Tickleman of Folsom. Now, these are pictures taken from her Facebook page. Right next to that, her mugshot taken after her arrest. First, we start with the primer. Um, this was a makeup tutorial she posted on her Facebook page, but she was known to many of her clients as simply a high-priced escort. Tickleman was arrested for the death of 51-year-old Forrest Hayes of Santa Cruz. This is a man police say Tickleman met up at a dock yacht last November. Tickleman is suspected of injecting him with heroin and leaving the man after he passed out and died. She was identified as a suspect when police learned she had an ongoing prostitution relationship with the victim.
Kingdom. This is a website Tickleman used to meet many of her clients, SeekingArrangement.com, a site where so-called sugar babies can find their sugar daddies and vice versa. Now, during interviews with detectives, Tickleman boasted about having more than 200 client relationships. We knocked at her parents' home in Folsom. A person inside refused to answer the door. Neighbors did not want to go on camera, but St. Tickleman had recently moved in with her parents. They were shocked to hear of the arrest. Detectives have surveillance video from the onboard the yacht that shows Tickleman leaving the scene the night of the crime. She was so callous that in gathering her things, she was literally stepping over the body and at one point stepped over the body to grab a glass of wine and finish the glass of wine. In the process of this, all the while, the victim's dying at her feet. So she showed no regard for the victim. She showed no attempt to even try to render aid or get aid there to assist him. Now detectives tracked down Tickleman online, but they feared she was going to leave the state, so they lured her back to Santa Cruz by posting a potential by posing as a potential client, that is. Now, they met with her at an upscale location in Santa Cruz where she was arrested over the weekend. Now, Tickleman is facing second-degree murder charges, but she's also being investigated. Okay, Allison, give me your take on this uh, case and this situation. I know you're into well, it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I am because it's just, she's so, like, Black Widow-like. I mean, and I mean, at least it appears that way. Based on, uh, yeah. frankly, first of all, I have to say, she's pled not guilty, um, and they now have recently opened an investigation into the death of her previous, of her boyfriend, who died from a heroin overdose under the same sorts of circumstances, um, where uh, she was present and she actually called 911 and did, and, but in that case, she actually did call 911. I guess this time she got a little bit smarter and decided not to call 911 and just to leave so that she wouldn't even have to talk to anybody on the telephone. I, I just, I don't know, it comes across uh, the fact that they have it on videotape that she's busy cleaning up the area and then stepping over his body while he's clearly in distress to drink from her glass of wine. I mean, she's just, she seems just like a dark, black, really vicious kind of uh, murderer. And I, I was just kind of shocked because everybody in the story is, she comes from a, a pretty decent home, apparently. Uh, I mean, a wealthier home. And uh, she had the last boyfriend was rather well off. But it, it's just, it, I found it very disturbing because... It kind of reminded me, if you remember Kathy Evelyn Smith, the one that injected John Belushi with drugs. Um, oh, and they yeah. attempted to hold her. Yeah, they attempted to hold her guilty of murder mm -hmm. or, or manslaughter because she had assisted him in killing himself. But here, you have kind of a different scenario in the fact that not only did she inject him, but she knew he was in distress and then left. And so the, the, it's sort of a callous indifference to his life that I found particularly disturbing. And we talked about this on my crime time show on the, on the lip.tv and, and all the, the, everybody was, we were kind of appalled because the facts that we're hearing right now make her sound like a particularly cold-blooded killer. If, if the facts are true yes. and she turns out to be guilty. What yeah, do you think? Does it like, make your blood run cold? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Uh, she does not come across as someone that is a very nice person, and uh, I just don't trust her as far as I could throw her. But uh, she's really she, attractive, which is you could see how. I mean, she's really attractive. Yeah. I mean, she's you know on the pictures so that you're seeing. <laughs> so was Jody. Yeah, I know, I know, and it's it's like <laughs> I guess there's some you know. I mean, this is. Yeah, you just, you know, when they talked in Jody Arias about the, the, young, the young woman who was uh, found guilty of killing her boyfriend and stabbing him, you know, behind, you know almost uh, over 50 times, that I can't believe I can't remember the exact number of stab wounds. But when, when you talk about her, they talk about how the boyfriend tried to crawl away from the scene, and it kind of reminds me of that in some respects, that this guy is dying on the floor and she's watching it. But she's got a refreshment while she's watching. <laughs> horrible. Yeah. Just horrible. <laughs> so yeah. I found it kind of intriguing. I'm curious to hear what comes out next because we haven't really heard anything from the defense. Yes, and the uh the, the retrial for the for the final phase I guess is in September. Right? Do you think they're gonna Yeah get for the death penalty? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm sorry, what's your question? Do you think they will get a panel of, do they have to get a uh, a panel of 12 
to agree that uh, that she uh, deserves the death penalty, right? Is yeah, that how it I think Rick, yes. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I'm not an expert in in Arizona law, but yes, from from what the experts on my show have told me, the fact is that once the prosecution gets another shot at that, you know, another bite at the apple, they generally are successful. I mean, he can correct anything that he might have done wrong. She's pretty much stuck with the facts of her plea about her family. Plus, there's the public attention and sort of the cries for her not to get away with things and all the selfish kind of things that Jody Harris has done to to not really take any responsibility for what she's done might have inflamed, you know, public opinion and certainly whoever's going to end up in that jury pool. So I would be concerned if I were her, the defense attorneys. And they and they and one of them already really dislikes her anyway. So <laughs> I, that was extraordinary. What was your take on uh, Juan Martinez, the uh, prosecutor who prosecuted Jody? Oh, see, I got a lot of... I thought he was over the top. Did you think that? Because I got a lot of crap um, online from people saying that he was brilliant. And frankly, I mean, what I've always said in response to that is my dog could have gotten a conviction of Jody Arias. I mean, it really, the the question wasn't... (laughs) The question wasn't whether or not she... Yeah, I mean, you know, there was so much evidence. I mean, she admitted to killing the guy. So what's the discuss? You know, the, you know, so she, there was a great deal of evidence that, um, that, that it was premeditated. There was a very little evidence of abuse because she really hadn't told anybody if there was abuse. Uh, there just wasn't very much to go on. Their experts weren't highly prepared for the defense. So I, I was, I thought he was over the top. I think that he, Generally, when you see a great prosecutor, they have a modulation of tone. They have moments where they get super angry and moments where they pull back. If you watch the prosecutor in South Africa in the Oscar Pistorius trial, there you will see. I mean, granted, the law is different, but there you will see a man who is a master of his occupation because I think that guy is is brilliant. There's a, just different changes of tone, certain sarcasm at points, pulling back, going forward. He gets angry when he wants to get angry, and I think Martinez just got angry and almost caused a mistrial by signing autographs during the course of the trial. So I, I, yeah. so I took a lot of issue with him. Yes, a lot Sorry? of people were upset that uh, at that when he was signing autographs. Very unprofessional, uh, some people said. Yeah, it was stupid because he took unnecessary risks with the case. And if I were Jody's family, I would have been distraught that the prosecutor, they're held to a really high standard of conduct. And you just really want them to pre- behave in the highest professional way. And I feel the same way about defense attorneys as well. But I, I, I particularly think that somebody who's representing the people has a, a really high standard to meet. No question. Okay, uh, let's take a listen to the hot, hot car death hearing situation, the most shocking moments for our listeners, and then let's talk on the other side. The okay. witnesses and everyone described that he pulled into it at a high rate of speed and they heard squealing tires when the vehicle came to a stop. Um, Justin immediately exited the vehicle. Um, he seemed upset. Um, his behavior was considered erratic um, by many of the witnesses. Um, he would be yelling and screaming, Oh my God, what have I done? My child is dead. And then he would stop and he would just have a blank look on his face and just stand there. Justin took Cooper out to the car. Um, He went into the back seat where the car seat was um, situated. Um, It's a rear facing car seat, so Cooper's head would be in between or almost in between the two front seats. He put Cooper in the vehicle. Um, He stated he strapped him in tight and um, Cooper gives him a kiss and he gives him a kiss back and he says he always gives him a kiss in case they get into a car accident and he dies. Um, he wanted Cooper to, you know, his last memory or Cooper to remember that he'd been loved or that his daddy loved him. Let's talk a little bit about his wife and the statements that she gave. Um, when, I assume she was supposed to show up at the daycare to pick up Cooper, correct? Correct. She walked into the daycare. She walked back to um, Cooper's classroom where she ran into um, Michelle and she asked, you know, uh, why are you doing here? And Leanne's like, well, I'm here to pick up Cooper. And, like, Ross never dropped Cooper off. And she's like, just got really calm. And she's like, well, I don't know what to do. They walk back out into the lobby. And in front of several witnesses, all of a sudden she states, um, Ross must have left him in the car. And, and they're like, what? There's no other 
no other reason. It, he, Ross must have, no other explanation, excuse me, Ross must have left him in the car. And they try to console her, and they're like, no, you know, there's a thousand reasons. There, you know, he could have taken him to lunch or something. We, we don't know yet. And she's like, no. At some point, did you put the defendant and his wife in a room together? I did. When you did that, um, who was it that got emotional? The father. And could you tell the judge, what was he being emotional about? What was the main thing he was crying about or, or, or sobbing about or whatever he was doing? Oh, it, it was all about him. Um, I can't believe this is happening to me. I can't believe you know this happened to me. Why am I being punished for this? Um, and it continued. It was all very one-sided. Did his wife ever say anything to him about what he said to police? She asked him. Um, she had him sit down, and he starts going through this, and she looks at him. She's like, well, did you say too much? Did you uh, uncover anything of what he was doing during that day while his child was out in the car? Yes. Okay. What did you uncover? He was having um, up to six different um, conversations with um, different women, it appeared, from the, from the messages from Kick mostly, which is a messaging service. And is that a computer-related messaging service? It is. And these conversations he was having with these females, were these, what, of what nature were they? Uh, the most common term would be sexting. Um, were photos being sent back and forth between these women and the defendant during this day while the child's out in the car? Yes, there were photos of um, his exposed penis, um, erect penis being sent. Um, there were also photos of women's breasts being sent back to him. He talks about being a guitar player with this girl. Um, she asked him uh, about cheating on his wife. Did she ask him a, con a question about his conscience? She did. What did she ask him? She now, asked, she's who? She's this other girl he is sexting with. Thank you. And she does. And Objection. That's no way relevant to anything. Final question, he says, Mr. Kilgore. I'm going to allow a question and answer, and then we're moving on. She says something to the effect of, do you have a conscience? And what was his response? Nope. When you knew Ross, was he consumed with his appearance, his reputation? Would you describe him as a possible narcissist? No. No, the the Ross that I knew was incredibly laid back. I mean, he he really was the one person you could point to that really got along with everybody. He didn't have any problems as far as I knew with anybody else. He had no enemies that I knew of. Uh, Tyler, um, Tyler, you know, let, me, let me interrupt you. you. You knew this guy. We're hearing these conflicting stories about him. Help us make sense of all this. How do you make sense of it as someone who really knew him well and intimately? Uh, you know, it's one of those things where I just, it, it's hard for me to make sense of, of any other. Try, myself. reach, help us. We were trying to, should we, should we say this was an accident? Or, or then, then that, the, and that the, the, the Leanne is just grieving the way she grieves? Or should we be suspicious and should this alter life that he's leading tell us something about his motivations? Um, I, all I can really say, all I can really attest to, again, is, is the Ross that I knew. And the Ross that I knew... The, the Ross that I, I, you know, want to believe him to be um, is this has got to be an accident. Okay. It's got to be an accident. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's he, helpful. Tyler, that, that's helpful for us. And stand by, please. And by the way, thank you so much for being here with us and helping us try, try to come to terms with this. I'm going to go out to my panel. Uh, Emily, I'm going to go to you first. You heard what this man said. You've seen the story. What are your thoughts? It's bizarre. I mean, yeah. I just can't get over the fact that it, could it be an accident? Yes, I think it could absolutely be an accident. But I also feel like there is something sticky here. I can't quite put my fingers on it, but there is something here that speaks to a little bit of, I don't know, like a psychotic break or I can't quite figure it out. I'm yeah, curious I, to hear I, a little I, bit more. I, I am really with you, too. I, I can't get my head around this. And, and Wendy, your uh, thoughts? Well, I want to gently remind his friend that even, you know, serial killers can have great social skills. I mean, but, the fact that Wendy, he got along Wendy, with Wendy, a lot of but people. Wendy, those people, there's some evidence of something. We should be able to, I mean, well, the only evidence we have is this goofy alternative sex life he was practicing. And, and, and that maybe that was just sort of his porn practice. Or, yeah, really or, wasn't or really his moral reasoning. On. Maybe it's a major character thing that he was suppressing his whole life with all these friendly people he was being. And he was conforming to all their needs and being likable. But inside, his moral barometer was completely off. He well, may not we, have had a conscience. Well, uh, he says he doesn't. Jennifer, should we believe that at his word? See, I, I, I guess my biggest question is, did he seem like the kind of person while he was in college or growing up with him that could forget his child? 
Is that, does that even seem reasonable to his Tyler friend that can, you could forget yeah. your Tyler, child? Tyler, can you answer that question? I, mean, you, I believe you have children too. Is that correct? Yes, sir. I yeah, can, can you imagine? Can you as a dad, as a father? How do we, as men with children, understand the dad? I mean, the only way I can sort of make sense of it as a clinician is say maybe he got so preoccupied with his you know, his appearance and with, his sexual acting out. But seven and, hours. And, and, but it's, you know... But how do you forget your kid? I, how, how, I mean, does, does, did he see anything? Yeah. Tyler, what do you say? Right. Uh, you know, as a father, again, I, you know, I can't speak for what Ross may have been thinking or what he was doing. I was not, I'm not I wasn't in his head. I was not in the situation, you know. I'm, I'm completely outside of it. But, you know, speaking personally, yes, as a father, you want to sit here and you want to say... No, I could never, ever do this. My kids are the most precious things in the world to me, and they are. Uh, my daughter is two years old. She's only a, a handful of months older than, than Cooper. Um, you know, my son is only nine weeks old. Oh. You, you want to believe that you cannot do this, um, cannot do something like this. But, you know, one of the things that this whole situation has pointed out and has come across on all the news channels is how many cases of this happen. And how many yeah. people out there yeah. have forgotten well, yeah. their kids yeah. and then realized yeah. it in time? And, you know, it's just these are all good people. You want yeah. to believe that they're good people. They just had, I guess, you know, what you would call just a lapse in. And, I, in, I, and, in, and let, let me let me. Okay, Allison, you heard the testimony. You heard the friend. <laughs> what is your take on this whole uh, hot car death child case? What's your opinion on this man? Well, first of all, these people are good people. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. Um, yeah. I, you know, I will tell you, the mother today, uh, you know, through her lawyer, Lawrence Zimmerman spoke out and saying, is saying on Leanna Harris's behalf, saying that the nightmare is too real. She'll never again be able to tuck her son into bed. And they blamed people for criticizing her for her failure to cry in front of a crowd or every single word she said and asked to leave her alone to grieve in peace. So the mother has not yet been charged with anything. I will tell you that when she was at the funeral, she said some things, and I know on our show um, on Crime Time that uh, defense attorney Mike Cavaluzzi, you know, and the former prosecutor, Robin Cox, warned not to, Robin Sachs, I'm sorry, warned not to, you know, draw anything from, you know, any inference from how some, that we shouldn't draw anything, any inference from these words. But I have to tell your listeners, Leona Harris, Leanna Harris at the funeral said some odd comments saying that she was, quote, happy that her little boy Cooper would miss some of life's letdowns, including his first heartbreak, his parents' and grandparents' death, and who to sit with at lunch at middle school. She goes, quote, I miss him with all my heart. Would I bring him back? No. To bring him back into this broken world would be selfish. And... You know, it's hard. You have to really fight against inferring anything from those comments because her reaction to this has been kind of odd. In terms of the father, I think the whole testimony about sexting, I'd be surprised if the judge lets it in. Um, I, I, I mean, he may. I don't know, uh, you know, where how he's going to, you know, where he's going to go on that. But it seems to me rather irrelevant. I think the focus should really be on the father's behavior and how many opportunities he had to see his son while he was driving from the Chick-fil-A, which is where they stopped, to the two minutes to his work office, and the fact that he stepped into the car in the middle of the day to get something out of his car. The child was dead, apparently, according to experts, within 30 minutes of him leaving the child in the hot car. So there probably would have been some sort of an odor. Um, then he got in the car and drove a little while before he realized that his son was in the back at the end of the day. So between the two parents, at least what's been leaked by, I would have to say, police or prosecutors, it's certainly not being leaked by the defense, has been rather damning. Um, I'm not sure how valid it is. The only thing, if we just go based on what happened at the hearing, you know, it's hard not to be prejudiced by the comments about him sexting with other women, but certainly that, you know, isn't a crime except for one case where he was sexting with an underage girl. Um, right. He potentially met right. up with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, he seems awful. If, if you put together all the things he was doing, whether or not he accidentally left the son in the car, there's some really bad facts that have already have come out. If they're true, I'd have to go against the friend who says they were good people. He sounds like that person that lives next to a mass shooter that says the guy was really quiet but really nice. Um, that's sort of what I get from the friend's testimony. You know, he was really, you know, we never made any trouble. You know, I mean, he, frankly, 
the fact that this guy was looking up websites about living child-free, at least according to the authorities, and the fact that um, he and his wife used the computers to research how long it takes someone to die in a car, in a hot car child, or an animal. Was it an animal? Was it an animal? It was an animal. It was an animal. The mom, there's been conflicting reports. I read, uh, you know, that she may have, you know, researched, that there may have been some research about a child as well, but... Gosh, you know, I, frankly, I, it's difficult for me to, and I am someone who generally is very much on the side of believing someone innocent until proven guilty. But the facts that it, as they've been leaked at this point, lead me to the conclusion that this guy potentially could be a monster. If the facts are incorrect that we're hearing coming, you know, as I said, probably from the prosecutors or probably from the police, but certainly not from the defense. If they are, if they are correct, it's horrible. If they aren't correct then, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But I'm not, I, I wouldn't be influenced by the sex thing or who he was or wasn't sleeping with. I mean, nobody knows what goes on behind closed doors, but I would be influenced by um, just sort of the facts of the case and the fact that he went back to that car when that child was dead and didn't notice it. That seems really so, um, not very, very credible. So in essence, you, you say, though, you're, you're, you're a big believer in innocent until proven guilty, right? I try to do that because I have a lot of issues with all those crime shows that just put on the Nancy what they're Grace. hearing over the news. Yeah, I mean, they just sort of, t- like Nancy Grace, exactly. I mean, she just she just put on what she's hearing like it's a fact. And I happen to know, yeah. having been somebody, and you know this too, when you work in the, in the media and you work in the press, that people yes. tell you things and give you information for a variety of reasons. And it's your job to call out and to figure out whether or not their motivation makes the material they've handed you untrue. And certainly when you're about to try a case and impanel a jury, it, it aids your case to put out a certain narrative. So if the narrative, you know, so basically what I'm saying is it helps the prosecution and it helps the police to leak information so that the jury pool will be poisoned and that they will all be of a certain mind when they're impaneled, no matter what they tell the judge. Because jurors, I, I hate to tell everybody, have been known to be less than a you know, truthful about what they know or don't know about a case, depending on, you know, whether or not they want to serve or not serve on a trial, on a jury. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I try to stand back. But when I look at this one, even I, I was talking to my husband about this, have a hard time. It's going to be a hard uphill road for the defense on this one. Based again, I give you that with the caveat of based on what I have heard thus far. We have to work on our show to come up with some sort of defense here right now. I mean, even when we're arguing about it, it, it puts our, my defense attorneys kind of, they're hard-pressed, but they still have managed. So we basically have to just say things like, if it's not, you know, if it's true or it's not true what we're hearing. Right now, he sounds like a guy that wanted to be free, single, and, you know, have lots of time to sex, and, uh, you know, toddler kind of gets in the way of that kind of stuff. So... I'm still unconvinced about the motive. I don't know if I, I have to go, you know, listening to what Dr. Drew said on his show that you were playing. Um, it makes you want to hope that he just had a psychotic break instead of intentionally has been thinking this all along and, and, and in some respects knew that what he was doing was totally wrong. I mean, you, you wish that he was like a mom with postpartum depression that didn't, that was hearing voices. That's all I could say. You know, because it's so uh, horrendous. The thought of that baby like being cooked alive in that car, it just makes me, you know, I, I can barely read the reports. Yes, and staying with that uh, innocent thing, um, we just passed the uh, 20-year anniversary of the O.J. Simpson uh, chase, if you will. What was your uh, take on the trial, the results, the the whole shebang, if you will? Well, I will tell you, I, I kind of agree with Jim Murray about the, you know, the, that it was a turning point in trial coverage. And every trial since then has called itself the trial of the century, but that truly was the trial of the century because it's so influenced the way the media covers a trial, and it actually hurt all the soap operas that were on against it. Um, I watched yeah. a good portion of the trial. I knew a lot of the lawyers involved. Um, Include, you know, I mean, Sean Holly actually represents Lindsay Lohan was working for Johnny Cochran at the time. Was at that? It was at the table. Um, and I will have to say, I I think that the prosecutors 
uh, I mean, everybody in the courtroom had their heads turned, but Johnny Cochran, who represented OJ and was kind of the lead member of the Dream Team, he had a much more of a panache in dealing with media. He was much more skilled. Marsha Clark and uh, Christopher Darden, I think, did a, a really awful job. I, I don't, I never no. understood why they were celebrated. Uh, they, they lost a, a pretty winnable case, um, and. I think that he was guilty, and I think it, it could have been proven, um, but I think that uh, the fact that those two guys came out of it with any semblance of credibility, always conti- it continues to amaze me, because probably the first prosecutor that was involved, Bill Hodgman, is a great prosecutor. He's still actually in the DA's office, and it's unfortunate that he didn't actually try the case, because he's a man, he has great integrity. He's not a guy to have his head turned you know, by media attention, he's been fighting actually to charge the Catholic Church higher-ups with wrongdoing for many years. You know, worked very hard to bring justice to the children that were abused by, um, you know, priests. And if he had tried the case, I think we would have seen something different. And um, the idea, yes, the idea of Christopher Darden to try the gloves on in the presence of the jury without even knowing... Uh, you know, I had Darren Kevin here, I had Richard Herman and others, and everybody to a man said that was not the right thing to do. And even Alan Did you, Dershowitz you know, said, that, that, Go ahead, sorry. I'm saying, even Alan Dershowitz said that was stupid. He lost the case <laughs> on that alone. <laughs> and you know something, he even... He's tried to justify it since then. I remember there was like a little scrimmage between him and Sean Holly where he was just sort of uh, you know, trying yeah. to justify the fact. My, I mean, glove, come on. my, glove, expert, my glove expert said it would work, he said on an NBC interview back in 97. <laughs> my glove you know, expert? What's a I glove know, expert? I know. I mean, talk <laughs> about, like, passing the blame. Yeah. I, you know, Darren Kavanaugh's going to be on my show on Thursday. I love him. He's terrific. Oh, yes. Yes, he is an awesome, and he has a, a, you know, a great story about him you know, where he came from and, you know, what he was and now where he is. Um, and he was, you know, at 3 in the morning here on the East Coast, I caught the replay of the, the, the Jody Arias ID version of the, the show that he does. So, uh, <laughs> just, uh, he's wonderful. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, he's very he's, talented. He's a... yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I know you, you also have Tom Mezzero on who is yes. a, a freak guest here, and uh, he, he he does a great job on uh, your show as well. And, I have uh, to tell you, I think Tom Mezzaro is the most convincing person I've ever met. It's a, he should be like, I have a warning label come with him. When he starts to try to convince you of something, you actually have to slap yourself across the face because you get so mesmerized. He's such a great orator and, and so convincing and persuasive. I don't know about you, but I always find myself going, well, wait a minute. <laughs> but it takes a minute. For, I'm, at first, I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, wait a minute. you know. But he's, yeah, he's, he's a really uh, incredibly talented defensive Attorney too, and I do think that Chris Darden should have been should be vilified for making the worst, probably one of the worst, but certainly in the top five mistakes in a major trial, you know, criminal trial in this country. The award, my award, would go to Chris Darden. I have to say that. Yes, yes, and uh, give me your take on Detective Furman. Now that we're in the OJ uh, case, though. Yeah, Detective Furman. Um, uh, you know, I, I've had people on who've made excuses for him and, you know, and, and, and you know, yelled about the relevance of his testimony. But that being said, his job was he should have provided the prosecutors with any kind of information that could be used against him. And, I mean, right. and some, he sh- I, my belief is, apart from the offensive quality of the remarks that he'd made, and I don't care if they were for a screenplay, but that guy was very fast and loose with certain language that I, I would be tempted to uh, believe he used on a lot of different occasions and inappropriately at that. Uh, well, there is no appropriate use for some of the language. But that being said, in he's still had an Yeah. In an interview, he tried to almost blame Martha that she should have said to judge, you know, listen, that should not, you know, that was her point to say, uh, you know, non-responsive or, you know, you know, can't say that. So he was, like, pretty much throwing, on, throwing her under the bus 
in one of those specials I saw. So, yeah. uh, you know, he I know, and but, you know, he has to take some blame. I mean, he has you to remember. You know something, I agree with you. I agree yeah. with you. You know, yeah. something, look, you know what, she's not a mind reader, and she did make objections about the relevance of the material. There was a whole hearing about the relevance of the material, and Judge Ito left in, you know, certain evidence. But the point is, is by the time she was busy arguing about the relevance, it you know, the whole thing had been sprung on her anyway. I mean, before they were arguing about the relevance, he should have told her that this material actually existed and that, there, that this was his Achilles heel and that it's possible that uh, the defense would find out about it and so forth and so on. So I think he dropped the ball there. Um, I, I, don't, I don't have any great respect for him, but he certainly was a master of reinvention. And, uh, and again, like Chris Darden has a, a new narrative every time he gets interviewed. <laughs> that, that is so true. Uh, I want to bring you to a current case, uh, the sleeping driver case, if you will. Um, he, they're trying him for, I guess, sleeping, uh, and uh, one of the uh, comics was killed uh, and one survived. Uh, Tracy Jordan name, case? Sorry, yes, that's it, that's it, yes. What's your thoughts on that? I don't know. He's kind of looking like a scapegoat. I mean, I, I think that if yeah. he was driving like I, that, from what I've, is that your take as well? That is my take 100%. That's a scapegoat, Definitely. I mean, it seems to me that, uh, from what I understand from people that do this for a living, that it's not really up to them how long they drive. <laughs> and that right. either they can drive those hours or they'll find, so if they say no, somebody else will drive those hours. You know, that, right. uh, I mean, so basically. That, there was no alcohol found. I mean, they're, they're going right. to try to say, the prosecution's going to try to say he wasn't sleeping enough. I mean, Hello, I don't know how that I don't know how that gets to like I don't know how that works. I mean, Joey Jackson was here and said, and said you know, if he was the if he was defending the case, he he'd win that case because you know that's very hard to prove that uh, you know if he, he was if, if he was representing that guy that to to try to prove make him the guy that wasn't sleeping enough. How do you prove something like that? I guess I have to go with Joey on that. Yeah, no, I have to go with Joey. I think basically that the fault here, I'm okay with the civil lawsuit against Walmart, um, you know, for for the death of of, uh, of the poor uh, James McNair who died, Jimmy Mack who was killed. I'm okay with a, with a, yeah, no, I mean, I have my computer right in front of me. I don't want to pretend that I remember everybody's name. But I I, I have, uh, you know, empathy for uh, his family, for uh, Mr. McNair's family. Um, but I have to say that however much this guy was driving, that was the result of the company that employed him and that asked him to drive those hours. I'm sure he wasn't – I mean, nobody wants to be working 24 hours straight. And, and frankly – uh, whatever he said at the scene of the crash is, I mean, I'm not even sure that he said what they say he said. That's what the police are saying he said, that he had an utterance where he said, oh, uh, you know, that I haven't slept in 24 hours. Um, this is what the police said he said at the time of the crash. So, you know, I think it's it's a horrific accident, um, and, I, and I, I feel for the victims of it, but I, I have to go with uh, Joey Jackson on this, and I've actually heard Joey speak about it. I'm not, uh, I, I, I kind of think that if, this man hadn't hit some famous people that the charges wouldn't be as aggressive as they are. Um, uh, you know, I don't think we would see him being charged with criminal anything. And uh, I do think that the defense can put on a, a pretty good case here. I, I think it's going to be difficult to show when he slept, when he didn't sleep, uh, you know, and that he made some utterance that only can be, you know, that the authorities are going to say he says. If he said he didn't say it, we'll have to see how credible, if he has to take the stand to say that he didn't say something. So we'll have to wait and see. But um, I would bet that we don't see him on the stand and they, they managed to win this one. I think that, they, that, that this is just because there was so much media attention on it that the uh, authorities felt, that the prosecutors felt the political pressure to charge. Absolutely. And uh, before we were talking, you were telling me that you just did uh, something on a sex scandal in Marble High in L.A. Can you share yes. that with our listening audience? 
Sure, yeah. I, I mean, I did a show where we looked into, there have been allegations made. It started by a young woman who was a student there. She's since graduated and now is a student at University of Pennsylvania that a teacher approached her and, you know, flirted with her and also, you know, tried, wanted to have sex with her and touched her knee. Um, she was 16. He was 40-something. And wow. the school, in response, uh, uh, they've responded and they've sent out emails. I actually am an alum of that school. It's an all-girls high school in Hancock Park, which is a, a wealthier section in the middle of the city. Um, it's 125 years old, for, which for those people who are listening on the East Coast is really old for out here. <laughs> that's our ancient kind of, yeah, I always have to say that, but that's our historical kind of tradition for Los Angeles. And it's a very Tony school. The, the people that founded the, LA, you know, the Chandlers who ran the LA Times for many years went there. And it used to be sort of a bastion of kind of white, uh, you know, Protestant uh, Episcopalian school. And when I went there um, in the you know, late 70s and early 80s, um, there were very few Jewish people there. I'm Jewish. And so it was just beginning to get kind of religiously, you know, integrated um, somewhat uh, religiously and a little bit ethnically. It's still, it costs about, at this point, uh, over 30 grand a year to attend. And that's on the low side because there's all kinds of other costs. And anybody who sends their kids to private school know what, what I'm saying. I sent my daughter there for several years and took her out because I found that the administration was insensitive and unresponsive in terms of bullying um, allegations. But this allegation uh, and finding out that this teacher had approached this young girl, she wrote about it in an Exo Jane magazine about her experience oh, with this teacher in the and exojane.com, I'm sorry, that her experience, and there, there was another story in BuzzFeed, and also the LA Times has covered it, Gawker, it's on gawker.com, and also uh, Daily Mail has picked up on the story, and there was a piece on it. You know, it's beginning to be everywhere. But she right. claims that she relayed these allegations to the school, and they sent the guy to therapy, and that's it. Eventually, the guy moved on to another Tony kind of very high-profile, really well-respected private high school in Pasadena called Polytech, and the Mar and Marlboro School did not inform Polytech of any kinds of complaints against this teacher. As it has happened now, we're learning that there are other complaints were made. Another young lady stepped forward, and apparently the woman who wrote about it for BuzzFeed is preparing another piece, and apparently there are nine additional victims or alleged victims. So basically, the issue here is, did Marlboro School, under California law, regardless of uh, you know, whether or not they felt there was enough evidence to bring some sort of criminal charges. Did they have an obligation to report? And on my show, a former sex crimes prosecutor, Robin Sachs, said that under reporting requirements in California law that they did have a, uh, a requirement to report it um, regardless, you know, of whether or not they thought criminal charges could be filed so that a real investigation by an impartial third party could take place. This young woman said nothing was done. She waited until after she graduated so that she could get, I guess, obviously, uh, into University of Pennsylvania without any recriminations for coming forward. And, um, and, I, and frankly, as an alum who I went there, my sister went there, my niece went there, I mean, we're, our whole family is, was very closely associated with the school. I've been really disturbed by a lot of things that I've seen at the school, and part of the reason I took my daughter out, um, it used to be a school that had a very, very strict honor code, strict discipline for people who did not nice things. And with the influx of fundraising and the focus on fundraising, it seems like the morality and the care and the safety of the young girls that go there has really gone by the wayside. And I was, I'm incredibly disturbed by everything that I'm reading, and I really think that the head of the school, Barbara Wagner, has a lot of, a lot of explaining to do, as they say, because the fact that she let this young girl, you know, nothing, that nothing happened to this teacher except for they sent him to therapy. And I, I hate to feed into stereotypes, but this is Los Angeles, and most people go to therapy anyway. Um, you know, seriously, is that really, this is, and, and I'm actually seeing some comments where people said, oh, she flirted back. This is a crime for a man to make advances to someone who's underage. I don't really care what she did. I don't care if she hopped into his lap. He's over 40 and he's fooling around or trying to fool around with a girl who's 16. Uh, there's nothing really more to, to be said. And frankly, if the allegations prove to have been false, you know, that's fine. 
but nobody investigated but the school. And Frank, you, I ask you, I mean, do you really want to leave that kind of a responsibility in the hands of, of a school? And even now, you know, everybody's saying, why didn't you go to the police? Right now, I got an email from the head of the school. They've appointed an independent uh, team to investigate. Um, it's, head by, it's headed up by a former prosecutor, federal prosecutor who has no experience in the area of sex crimes. Um, Deborah Wong Yang, and they've asked that all future compliance be privately conveyed to that committee. So I ask you, you, you know, you want to wonder, do you, do you have to ask yourself, are you really wondering why this girl, uh, why, you know, it did become public? This is a school, these kinds of schools are businesses, and they thrive on secrecy and keeping complaints as few as possible because the private school business in Los Angeles, I know it's the same on the, in other big cities, and probably worse in New York, is it's big business and it's incredibly competitive. And so I, I, as an alum and somebody who was taught at this all-girls school about women sticking up for other women and that there's nothing we can't do as women, I mean, it was a really strong message. And I don't mean a, a, a message that we all have to, you know, I'm not talking about just the, the brand of feminism that is, uh, you know, no men or something like that. It was a message about our own empowerment to make our own choices, but more importantly, to stand up for each other and to stand up for morality and to stand up for honor. And this, it just really hit me hard when I, I heard about it, especially in light of my own personal experience with the school. I could definitely imagine. And in sticking with the uh, these molestation claims, uh, I was going to ask about Woody Allen first. I know you did a piece on uh, him with uh, uh, the retired cop. Um, you had, uh, what's his name? I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank again. Was it Mike Cavalizzi on, or was it Jim Clemente, the former Jim FB, retired Clemente. FBI? Yeah. He's yeah. a retired FBI agent and who specialized in sex crime, sexual assault, um, and he's and also he the uh, profiler. Yeah, and he's a victim himself, and he's also a former prosecutor, but he was a profiler in the BA unit for... Tell me if you agree with me on this, and it, it's a little bold, but I'll say it. Most people who are victims tend to always side with the victims. Agree or disagree? Well, it's a, that's difficult because I, I don't know... I can't have a statistical sampling. I will say that I raised that issue with Jim, that he, do you always assume that somebody's guilty? My problem with this situation, <laughs> I raised the same issue. I don't know if it's most people. I can only speak for the people that come on my show. And I do think that Jim is highly sensitive to believing people who have been victimized because he knows, I think personally, you know, what it feels like when people are skeptical about your claims. And I think the country is certainly, you know, having grown up in America, that the sensitivity to sexual abuse is a new thing. And years ago, you know, it was almost impossible for anyone to believe you. On that. Mm -hmm. What about the sensitivity to somebody who's being falsely accused? That is just as horrific, I would think, if, you know, that is the case. I mean, you know, so think, you, you raise a good point. You raise a good point because while the pendulum used to be on one side, I think it has swung very much, you know, it, it, some people could argue to the other side. I don't think to the other side completely because I still see in this situation at Marlboro people questioning uh, whether the 16-year-old egged on the 40-year-old man and seem to have no understanding of the, the age difference and, and how that's not possible. <laughs> I mean, that's not possible under the law, and I think people need to understand that. A 16-year-old cannot give consent to do anything. That's the law. So, and same with the Woody Allen case. There's now, if anybody, you know, makes that kind of an argument. The problem I had with the Woody Allen story was that the phone call wasn't made to him, and his statement of denial wasn't included in that op-ed piece. And I also know... Having worked at the New York Times and relying on some sources there, that that piece was pitched for the opinion page and it was rejected and then it was slipped in um, under that particular columnist. Even though the page did not want to, to print it, I mean, you know, the op-ed page didn't want to print it, that that columnist decided to print it in his own column and he's allowed to print whatever, you know, he wants to. And I found that if you're going to have somebody so overtly accusing somebody of sexual abuse, or, you know, sexual right. molestation, that they should at least get 
two sentences at the top, Mr. Allen was contacted before the publication of this article and denied all the falling and apprised of the allegations in this piece and has denied them all. Something along those lines instead of publishing his response several weeks later. That's not good journalism as far as I'm concerned. It's not Absolutely. fair journalism. And yes, yes. And uh, the other uh, case, and uh, I think I know your answer already, but Tomorrow night uh, on the Oprah Winfrey Network, she will be interviewing uh, Matt Sandusky, who started out as a witness for the uh, defense, and in the middle of it, changed his tune and uh, decided, or in in Jerry's words, he decided he was a victim. Um, What's your thoughts on that alone? Not the whole Jerry Sandusky case, but the Matt switching in the middle. Well, I can hear Jim Clemente, um, his words ringing in my head, that the statistics are the people that are victims of sexual abuse take a very long time to come forward. That, in the case of the son, is complicated by the fact that he was adopted by um, Jerry Sandusky and had conflicting loyalties. Um, Given the fact that he's already convicted of the crimes that the son is accusing him of, um, I am... Predispos- predisposed to believe the son because we already we're not contemplating a, a trial coming up and whether or not somebody's guilty of something. I mean, he was soundly and profoundly found guilty of being a pedophile and of abusing children and using his position as you know a coach in the uh, Second Mile organization in a charity organization to pray and be a predator on young boys. So I, I, I'm inclined to believe him. I, I'm interested to see the interview. I, would, I, I yes. have an understanding. I, I have to say from a legal perspective, I wouldn't want him on the witness stand after he already testified to the contrary. It kind of reminds me of Wade Robson in the Michael Jackson case. Yes, yes. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, testifying, Wade Robson testified. Sorry? 22 years later. Uh, Wade came out 22 years later after the fact that he so-called got molested, and he was uh, supposed to be in this, uh, these, these tribute concerts, and uh, the story that I hear is that he got kicked out of that. So one would know, would know if, uh, if he was on that Circus L.A. tour, if these claims would have been still if they would have came out. You know? Well, you know, it's really, that guy, the Wade Robson thing is really problematic because, I mean, he went, testified yeah. under oath to the, to, that he wasn't a victim, and now he is a victim. On the other hand, he, sorry? He wasn't a child when he testified in 2005. He was 20-something years old. He wasn't, like, 10, you know? Yeah, I mean, and, but again, I will tell you that Jim Clemente, who has a great deal of expertise in this, says that it takes people a very long time to come forward, especially men, because of the homosexual overtones, you know, and, and fear that they will be thought to be gay um, or, you know, have participated in gay sex or something along those lines, and the shame of it all. Frankly, I, I, I can understand the late reporting and, and having to become an adult to feel empowered enough to say something. On the other hand, in the case of somebody who's testified, I mean, I think that once you've said something under oath and lied, it becomes very difficult to believe the next thing that you say under oath. So uh, I, I understand that. Um, yeah. Tom Mesereau said he was grilled by Prosecutor Ron Zonin, um, hammered, if you will, on the uh, stand, and uh, he stuck to his gun. No, no, did he, did, did he touch you when he was sleeping, possibly? Did this happen? Did ABC or happen? He really stuck to his guns, and uh, like you said, he testified. It wasn't just saying this, and which he did in YouTube, how great Michael was, and the best thing to you know for him. It's just very curious the timing. Uh, that is uh, troublesome, as Tom brings up. Yeah. The AEG trial just starts out. Uh, doesn't look so good, you know. I mean. Uh, it doesn't, and it also, I'm questioning just as you are, I mean, and I hear that, that uh, would he have, it's difficult for me in terms of fairness to see somebody bring a sexual abuse case against somebody who's dead. Uh, I mean, against yes. the estate of someone. That's, when, that's, yeah. 
I, I, especially yes. since those kinds of claims were brought while he was alive, and there was plenty of opportunity for Mr. Robeson to bring those claims while Mr. Jackson was alive. So I had some problems with that, but frankly, it still goes back to he swore under oath, you know, to tell the truth, and now he's going to swear again under oath to tell the truth. And I'm not saying that people don't lie under oath, but it always it impacts my ability, my belief, or ability to believe them when they've testified one way. Once somebody's lied about something, then obviously they're, they have no problem lying about something else. Yes. And as Whoopi Goldberg pointed out on The View, she said he's not doing this for money, but he goes on a today show, tells the whole world what happened, and he files a suit with the Michael Jackson estate. That's problematic for me out of everything because he said he said loud and clear to Matt Lauer, I am not doing this for the money. You could watch it on YouTube. And, yeah. you know, he's going to court for money. So, which is it? You know, that's the, that's the whole issue I have with the uh, Wade Robson situation. And, of course, he testified... There's so much stuff that uh, I don't think he's going to win the case. I, I just hope the judge does it out, like Mr. Mesro has previously said. But I want to thank you for joining us for this hour. Uh, it was a oh, great... It's over! <laughs> that was so fast. It went by very quick indeed. And, of course, those that are listening live, you can wait about five minutes and just listen to the same link and uh, hear it again if you want. So... There you go. I want to thank you, Allison, for making your debut here on King George Radio. It was a pleasure having you. And uh, Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it was really cool, really cool. And uh, we will have you soon. Oh, good. And I hope that maybe we can get you to come on uh, the Lip TV and come on to Crime Time and, and chat it up with us as well. Really enjoyed it. Maybe I'll bring Joey Jackson with me. <laughs> <laughs> I think, Joey, we would all have a good time. We definitely have a good time. But thank you. I really liked your show, and I was, it was my pleasure to be on. Okay. Have an awesome night. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Take care, fans. We will be back on Tuesday night at 8 p.m. sharp. Take care, everybody.